0: Katie, I have been instructed by you to ask you how you're doing. How are you doing? Thank you for
1: asking, Jesse. I am pretty good, except that I have a severe weed hangover today. Have you ever had a weed hangover?
0: I've had weed panic attacks, but not <laughs> not, a, not a hangover. What does it feel like? Is it similar to a uh, alcohol hangover? No, it is not similar to an alcohol hangover
1: at all because it's not painful. You just sit around the day after, in my case, eating a bunch of edibles contemplating the meaning of life so in some ways it's worse than, a, than an alcohol hangover no headache just a lot of existential questions
0: i saw my oldest friend and him and his wife were recently at like a barbecue with their kids and with a lot of other people's kids and they gobbled down a few very tasty lemon squares oh only no. to find out after that they were edibles that were oh not well no labeled. how did that go <laughs> Uh, it, it was a challenge. I think they each had one. My friend almost had two, but then the last minute, his wife was like, "Oh, I'll have that." And then wait, so did just, the kids have it? No, no. I'm sorry, the kids didn't have it. The parents oh, did that. too bad. And then they had to raise their kids. The
1: story would have been way better if the kids had taken I know. them. I
0: should just start over and tell it differently. All
1: right, I think that's enough small talk for today. What do you think? Should we move on? <laughs>
0: I do. I was informed that uh, our last episode, we forgot to introduce the podcast. So let's do it very quickly twice. Uh, what, Katie, what's the name of this podcast? This is Blocked and Reported, and I'm Katie Herzog. I'm Jesse Single. Katie, what's the name of this podcast? This is Blocked and Reported, and I'm Katie Herzog. I'm Jesse Single. Uh, we are all caught up. And this week, uh, we have a very special interview with Greg Lukianoff of FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education. We are finally, after multiple requests, going to get more into some of this critical race theory stuff. Greg, he um has, you know, a lot of complicated thoughts on these laws, and, and we get into it. He is uh, opposed to some of them, thinks some of them are reasonable. It's a really interesting conversation. We'll hopefully add some nuance to what has been a remarkably dumb online conversation, even by the standards of online conversations. It's also been a dumb
1: offline conversation. And my preference would be never talking about CRT, but it's just unavoidable at this point it is dominating so much of the cultural conversation right now that we are going to dive the fuck into it
0: yeah yeah we're gonna we we had to but first uh we have a uh, a very alarmingly transphobic puppet show right yes
1: transphobic puppets it's a huge problem
0: yeah we've been we've been trying to speak out about this but we have a really disturbing example uh katie give the basics on this one you sort of spearheaded this
1: so there is a british puppeteer named barnaby dixon i assume that is his given name that is the most possible british name i could come up with so i hope that it's real
0: i was gonna say if i had to immediately if I had to immediately pretend to be British and give a fake name, I'd be like, uh, Barnaby Dixon. Yeah, yeah.
1: So let's just assume that it's real. So he's best known um for – he does, like, puppet stuff for big series like the recent uh Dark Crystal update on Netflix. He has a million – over a million subscribers on Instagram and YouTube. Um And he – his work is – it's hard to describe, so we're going to put links to all this, everything that we talk about in the show notes. His stuff is pretty cool. Do you think it's cool?
0: Yeah. I mean, this was my first uh, exposure to it. I was pretty impressed with what I saw. I I liked a lot.
1: Yeah. So most of what he does on his YouTube, uh, his YouTube page is sort of goofy with these puppets that I don't know if he's created them or if he's just like the puppeteer behind them, but he has a couple of main characters. One of them is a bird named Dabchik. um, And another one is a fish okay so here's just this is just a sample of one of his videos this is from 2018 the british voice that you're going to hear is this bird character he has dab check. and then this starts with some purring and that's because it's about a cat so just listen to this
2: yeah that's right people we got a new cat so, after scouring Gumtree, we popped up to North Bristol some drizzly afternoon last month to take a little look at a litter. Okay, so there's a there's a black one, uh, so I'm... No, I mean, I don't, it's just that there's some other black cats in our neighbourhood and we wouldn't want to muddle them up. You know, not that all black cats look the same, it's just... Oh dear. So yeah, we went with the one with popcorn stuck to her bumhole, and we're going to call her Matilda.
1: So Jesse, as you can tell from this, it's extremely British, um, but also he does have this sense of humor, this like slightly off-color sense of humor. This was made in 2018. The joke that he's making is sort of a joke about sort of the awareness of racism. Would you say that's accurate?
0: Yeah, yeah. It's like he's just sort of gently riffing on like uh, the hypersensitivity to the idea of being perceived as racist.
1: Right, right. So... You can tell from this that he has maybe a little bit of an unorthodox sense
0: of humor. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Very – he's just British. British people are really fucked up in general, yeah.
1: Of course, yeah. I mean, they're all racist. I mean, Barnaby Dixon, you might as well just like fucking put a KKK hood
0: on. They tried to colonize a country that we rightfully discovered and claimed for ourselves. (laughs) How messed up is that? If my out. if my understanding of the history is correct it might not be.
1: So recently Barnaby Dixon has gotten a little bit more into politics and he interviewed Sasha Ayad in early June. Jesse, what do you know about Sasha?
0: She's one of the few American gender clinicians who who I think basically and the, the language here gets so fraught and complicated but she's basically not in favor of the affirming model and the affirming model means different things. It's almost like CRT. It sort of means different things to different people. But the basic idea is that if a kid strongly insists they're trans, they're really a boy or a girl despite their body, you, you support that. And, and I don't think – Ayad is pretty clear that um, she's not going to like argue with her clients or disagree with them. But she's part of a cohort that is skeptical of the idea that we should be transitioning a lot of kids. And she believes that gender dysphoria is often the result of other stuff that can be worked through through talk.
1: Right. And, and this position that Sasha has taken has put her in a sort of, put her at odds with some trans activists. I interviewed her recently and she has had complaints filed against her from trans activists trying to get her to lose her license. So she has faced some, like, some real professional consequences. Both of these complaints, nothing happened with them because they were not legitimate. Um, but she's faced some, like, real consequences for not following the, the affirming model.
0: Yeah. And, and I mean, to me, my my response to someone who doesn't follow the affirming model is would be very different if they were like literally trying to talk kids out of the idea that they were trans or trying to really affect how they express themselves. I don't see any sign she's doing that. And I mean, I'm overall in favor of like careful exploration of this stuff, especially for teenagers or, or near teenagers where like, they might go on really serious drugs we don't have long term data on in a youth setting. So um, I think people are way too flippant about the youth medical stuff. I've written about that recently. I'm working on another piece about it. So, in uh, that, I don't know too much about her practice, but I think I'm on board with her general idea that we should explore the causes and nature of dysphoria before jumping to um i don't know less reversible stuff
1: okay so uh barnaby dixon has sasha on his show and it's an it's not like your typical interview by any means in part because it's conducted by puppets um so we'll play part of this this is the beginning where uh he is introducing sasha And it starts with the fish. This is Philip the Fish talking to Cassandra, a mermaid
3: doll.
2: Oh, hello there. Many welcomes to you. Many kisses, too. All for you. There you go. I was wondering, do you think Cassandra feels more like a human or a fish? A mer or a maid? I was asking her, but she she doesn't answer me. She covers her boobies like a human lady, but no underpants. Like fish. I also wear no underpants, but firstly, I am a fish, and secondly, nobody has complained. So far, what if your sense of your own identity does not match how you appear to others? Would it be difficult? Maybe. Now, this is a tricky subject, but to share her perspective on this matter, we have invited a licensed professional counselor, Sasha Ayad.
1: So let's get to just a little bit of the interview so you can hear what sort of the tone of the interview.
3: So I have a friend and colleague named Stella O'Malley. She's actually the co-host of a podcast that we run together, and um, she had a gender issue as a child. Now, at the time, she was not taken to any doctors, but she insisted that she should have been a boy for many years in her childhood. She dressed as a boy, she called herself a boy, and around puberty, she started to feel very distressed. Now, ultimately for Stella, the difficulty of puberty helped her realize that biology is bigger than she is. And she actually ended up outgrowing her distress. And she's quite happy as a woman. She's married and has children now. Uh, but she's a great example of a person who has struggled with their gender, but had that resolve on its own with time and space.
2: That is interesting, Sasha. Let me think for a moment. Okay. Thank you. So, if Sasha's friend, what her name is, uh, Stella had changed to become Stan, let's say. Uh, maybe she would not have had her children and feel quite so happy uh, now. Hmm, maybe that depends if she likes her children.
0: Right, so this is like, I, I, it's funny, before we record it, I'm working on this long newsletter piece that touches on this idea of desistance. This is this finding that for a significant number of kids who feel gender dysphoric or feel like they're trans at a young age, It'll go away in time. If you Google that, you will see a lot of people acting like the research has been like debunked. It, it really hasn't. I'll include a link in the show notes to some work I've done on this explaining that this has not been debunked. But as far as I'm concerned, um, you know, Sasha is explaining a thing that happens. It does go away on its own in time, which would push you in the direction of we shouldn't rush into transition, right?
1: Right, so nothing that she said will be shocking to to regular listeners of this podcast or people who've read your work or who, who've read my work. This is probably not something that you're going to hear on you know an NPR show about about transition. Um, so, but to you know to <laughs> to those of us who've been following this closely, nothing about what she said was shocking. However, Jesse, what do you think the response was when uh, Barney B. Dixon released this video?
0: Not good. I would imagine uh, a lot of people are upset about it. Yeah, I think that would uh, be
1: putting it mildly. Barnaby Dixon got flooded with negative comments and released a follow-up video called Responding to Criticism. So... This video, it starts with the bird, Dabchik, who is not in the the initial video with Sasha. It starts with him sort of checking in after being offline. He opens his computer and he sees just this flood of negative comments. And it starts off. So the video starts off with showing like dozens probably of these comments of people you know calling Barnaby Dixon uh, a transphobe and a bigot- or whatever um, and then it goes to Philip the Philosophish who interviewed Sasha so let's play uh, let's play the, the beginning of this episode here
2: what the freaking heck have you done oh hello Dabzik uh, what seems to be the problem what seems to be the problem the problem is you released a transphobic video on my channel I did not well why are people saying you did Well, maybe they see it a different way. That's okay. Oh, okay, it's okay then. Have you seen the comments and look how many freaking dislikes? Ah, yes, but lots more likes. And plenty of the comments were constructive. Listen, Dapsik, we discussed a difficult subject and Miss Sasha Ayad's perspective does seem to get a little uh, misrepresented. So no harm in having a listen and seeing what we can learn. Yeah, whatever, Phil. Sounds like you flipping softball, this floozy. I'm going to find some of the critiques, and I'm going to give this dummy the grilling you couldn't. And you need to have a long, hard think about what you've done. Well, long, hard thinks are my speciality.
1: Okay, so he does something interesting. He calls Sasha back. So the bird, what you're hearing is the bird calling Sasha on FaceTime. So let's go to the next clip. Hello, who's this?
2: Oh, really? Who, who is this? This is Dabchick, you utter doofus. I, I'm the chick that's allowed to have opinions on this channel. Oh, I am sorry, Sasha. I, I hope you are not busy.
3: It's okay, Phil. I'm just brushing my cat.
2: Oh, that is a lovely cat. Oh, my gosh. Shut up, both of you. Sasha, I accuse you of having a perspective that is harmful to the trans community, and you actively put them in danger by sharing it.
3: Okay, well, plenty of trans people actually agree with my approach. And besides, what makes you think the detractors speak for all trans people?
2: Uh, because they say they do, and they're very loud and very angry. Obviously.
0: Yeah. What's What's interesting about this is like how, to be very cleverly, like, I, so I'm I'm familiar with this overall debate about the literature, and I, I obviously side largely with Sasha, but I think this was a clever way of addressing that moment when there is a flood of such vitriol that the average bystander will be like. Why would people be this mad at someone unless they'd done something really wrong?
1: Right. So what follows for the rest of the video is basically a second interview with Sasha. So this, this, what you, what you might think would be this sort of apology video ends up basically reinforcing her position. She talks about you know, puberty blockers, the danger or the side effects, uh, the, the, the statistics on desistance, the lack of data when it comes to things like blockers. Um, she talks about media coverage and she talks mostly about the need to be cautious.
0: Well, but, but they do along the way. They also, they address specific, uh, critiques too. It's not like they just relitigate the message. It's like an actual conversation, which I find useful.
1: Oh, totally. Yeah. He just, it's like a second interview. Um, okay. So this ends with, I really love the ending here. So, uh, let's play this last part.
0: Okay, uh...
2: Philip, I think I might need to have a little chat with a certain segment of my audience. Dabsik, you have been drinking. Are you sure you want- Yeah, I'm right at that level of intoxication where everything starts to make sense. (laughs) Okay, my little dingleberries, there'll come a time in all of your lives when you will hear an opinion that you don't like. You can do one of two things. You could either decide that that opinion is somehow bad or harmful and sound all sorts of names and attribute all sorts of motivations in the hope that the opinion will go away. Or you could consider the possibility that the person might have some important nuance to add to the subject, and shutting down the conversation could actually harm the very people you claim to be defending. Oh... Well, that was surprisingly measured. What? Did I say something? Sorry, I blacked out.
0: Yeah, I mean, none of this, you know, this is all considered a crazy thing to think that there could be differences of opinion because we're so used to tagging one side of a debate like this as, like, harmful or violent. So I was just, I was impressed with the way uh, Barnaby handled this whole thing. And 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 I got to say, like, I know there was a big splurge of, uh, surge, splurge, (laughs) a big, uh, jizz of complaints. Um, and, uh, and they, in this second video, he, he did this, he flashed through a a ton of them, but in both videos, actually, you actually did see in the comments, you saw a lot of like respectful conversation, including among people who disagree. That could just be this particular audience, but it wasn't all just screaming and vitriol. I did think there was some, um, you know, productive conversation here.
1: Yeah, what I love about this is that he refuses to apologize, but he doesn't, besides calling his audience dingleberries, which I think is a, a term of affection, um, he's not condescending towards them, but he also refuses to sort of compromise his position, which is that sometimes you're going to hear some things that you don't like and you need to, to take other people's uh, perspectives into account and not sort of go immediately to the the hate speech and the attempts to shut people down.
0: Yeah, I was so it's that lack of apology that really inspired me because so many times you see this script play out where someone like says something they think is reasonable which is reasonable but then everyone gets mad at them and they they just instantly fold and apologize. It reminded me I um I won't name names but I recently got together with a journalist who'd had some pretty unfair shit happen to them and they were telling me about all all their longtime friends in journalism who would privately support this person but would not say so publicly because there's such a climate of fear and of being seen as saying the wrong thing. And I um, – you know, that's specific to journalism, but it's just – a lot of it's human nature.
1: Yeah, it's true. I, I talked to a guy recently who also – a journalist who has um – been basically canceled, and he put it a really he. We were sort of talking about this same phenomenon where you know private support, uh public silence, basically, and he put it in an interesting way. He said so we were talking about specific people that he knew, and he would say, you know, these people they know how to read the room. And <laughs> I think that he's 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 got a good point, but also like our job as journalists is should not be to read the room; uh, it should be to not read the
0: that room. That exact expression came up when I talked to my person. This like, jur- yes, exactly. Reading the room is poison to good journalism or to good creativity if you're a youtube creator
1: yeah to comedy to art you should be as dense as possible that's the the rule that i live by be as blind as possible is that is that ableist blind
0: just be completely oblivious to everything yeah exactly that's right tone deaf (laughs) leave it at that
1: all right we will post links to all these uh videos in the show notes There, barnaby dixon despite the fact that he is british is a his puppeteering is pretty fucking cool
0: very cool Katie, we've been having a lot of fun with this conceit where you force me to read embarrassing ad copy. Let's switch it up. I've written a respectful, tasteful new Hello Tushy ad and would like you to read it. No, I don't think so. Katie, read the fucking script.
1: Uh, fine. It's the middle of summer and my butt feels like some sort of deep, dark, super dank jungle. I'm pretty sure a giant family of parrots lives there, not to mention all sorts of other undiscovered wildlife, including many species that have yet to be identified. You think that this is embarrassing as though there's something wrong with having a giant family of parrots live in my asshole? (laughs)
0: If you're like Katie and your butt is a gross swampy jungle infested with diseased parrots, you should check out the Hello Toshi 3.0 Modern Bidet Attachment. It's stylish, eco friendly, easy to install, and will give you the self confidence you need to stop being taken advantage of by your co host.
1: The Hello Toshi 3.0 attaches to your existing toilet with no electricity, extra plumbing, or tech support FaceTimes.
0: Every Hello Toshi Bidet Attachment comes with a 60 day risk free guarantee and a 12 month warranty.
1: Already got a Hello Tushy on your pot? Upgrade to the new Hello Tushy 3.0. And if you're new to the revolution, join millions of happy Hello Tushy customers right now for a clean butt with every flush.
0: Give yourself the gift of a clean, parrot-free butt. Go to hellotushy.com barpod to get 10% off plus free shipping. This is a
1: special offer for our listeners at hellotushy.com barpod for 10%
0: off. hellotushy.com slash barpod. Okay, just our uh, normal housekeeping. You can always reach out to us at blocked and reported at gmail.com. You can get our merch at barpod.org. Flying off the shelves as always. Get it before it's gone. We have a subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash blocked reported. And we always appreciate it if you can review us positively, of course, on Apple Podcasts, where I believe we uh, are currently enjoying a sizzling 4.7 uh katie you wanted to uh to introduce a a sexy new feature right
1: yes jesse didn't mention this but we have a subscription-based program at patreon.com slash and reported if you go there and you join us for just five dollars a month you get three extra episodes of this podcast every month there are also live chats there are ask me anything there's a whole community there it's a great it's a, a great service best value in media and we are today announcing A new feature for our patrons, a dating service. What? Yes, this idea came from one of our listeners who posted about this on our subreddit. This person requested that we bring, because we bring people together, we might as well make it official. So for single people on this podcast, or maybe people in open relationships, or just people who want to cheat on their spouses, we are no one to judge. If you send us a classified ad through Patreon, we will read it on air. Include your email address so we can forward any replies that you can get, and then you can take it from there.
0: So wait, Katie, I'm I'm, I'm asking you this. We are – and I'm, I'm asking this on mic. So we're going to read all – during patrons-only episodes. No. We are going to – we're get, no,
1: oh. no, we'll do it through – because then only patrons can date each other. We can I, – I figure uh, we could just read one on, on every show.
0: Yeah, I like that. Okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we're working this out as we go. Yep. Okay, so patrons – Send us your classified ads, keep them short, include your email address. Disclaimer, we cannot be held liable for any bad dates or murder situations that occur through this service. By participating in the blocked and reported dating service, you take on all personal, emotional, sexual, and legal responsibility.
0: <laughs> it's a lot of sexual responsibility. <laughs> also please uh veiled anti-semitism is okay but not
1: <laughs> so i'm really excited about this i think we can really make some like love connections happen and maybe people will start you know get together have some children name them after us name them katie and then name the second one katie and the third one katie as well
0: i hope you're right we did try to do advice like we're going to do sort of a dan savage style advice episode i think we really got two submissions and they weren't they weren't quite right so i hope more people take advantage of this this can um tie into your belief that the lesbians are being driven to the edge of extinction, we can help the three remaining lesbians find one another.
1: Yeah, I think this, with the the request on Reddit, actually, it specifically mentioned lesbians and horse fuckers.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, let's let's give this a shot. Fuck it. What if we, we're we going to create so many babies for our podcast, even more than we already have?
1: We're going to make the overpopulation problem way worse. The overpopulation of podcast listeners.
0: They're going to call it the bar pod boom of the uh, 2020s. <laughs> Okay, so if you're a patron, send a message with just a, a short well, – Should we have a cap on the length? It can't be that long. How long? Just
1: make it short. Make it like three lines. All
0: right. So like uh, single Brooklyn podcaster seeks Manic Pixie Dream Girl to go oh, to national concerts. That for. one I'm just
1: going to delete. <laughs> All right, folks. So join us at patreon.com slash blocked and reported.
0: All right. What's, uh, next we have uh, our interview with uh, Greg Lukianoff, right?
1: Right. So Greg is probably familiar to a lot of our listeners, because in addition to being the head of FIRE, the Foundation for Indiv- Individual Rights and in Education, he is auth- also the author, along with Jonathan Haidt, of The Coddling of the American Mind, a book that has had great influence on both of us and I, th- I think a lot of our listeners as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a good book. I, I um, include a link both to it in my review of it in New York Magazine. But uh, yeah, it's worth checking out.
1: Um, so the reason we had decided to have Greg on the show is because he wrote an essay for FIRE about this current spate of laws on critical race theory, looking at both these laws in higher education and in K-12, which is what we're going to focus on for most of the interview. Um, we'll add a link to the essay in the show notes. It's a 13-point essay. It's long. It's nuanced. He makes a lot of good points. And the response to it was basically him getting dogpiled by people on both sides of this debate.
0: Yeah, and we should say other other it it was co-authored. He uses the uh, first person singular, but other people they put a lot of time into this. It's like 5000 words. I learned a lot from it, so I think it's worth a read.
1: Yeah, his his piece is called 13 Important Points in the K- Campus and K-12 Critical Race Theory Debate, and it is co-authored with Adam Goldstein, Bonnie Snyder, and Ryan Weiss.
0: Yep, highly recommend it. Uh, anything else or should we just throw to the interview?
1: No, let's uh let's hear from Greg. Greg, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. First, let's get to the reason that we are unfortunately all here. Critical race theory. <laughs> Greg, if yeah. you could uh if you could picture for a moment. A listener has just woken up from a coma.
0: <laughs> I am so jealous of this listener, by the way. This listener who, who does not know what CRT is. I want to be this listener. Sorry, go ahead.
1: Hopefully the listener also uh, doesn't know that Donald Trump was president, that we went through a global— There's going to be a lot to to explain to this listener, but— For the sake of this conversation, how the hell do you explain what is going on in this moment?
4: Oh my God. Um, Well, I tried to uh, explain it in a 5,000 word piece because I felt like the discussion wasn't as rich and nuanced as it needed to be, um, which was mostly well received, but also, you know, exploded in different ways. So, um, most important thing to know is that there is something called critical race theory and there are things that an activist named Chris Rufo is calling critical race theory and they're not really the same thing um but they do overlap to a degree and mostly what Chris Rufo is getting at is kind of a uh like um Collegiate version of identity politics with a very strong emphasis on group identity. That, that, of course, people always bring up it's kind of like, well, they they believe that race is a, is a construction. Like, yes, but it also is. It's, it explains the entire world to a degree. So there's there's uh, you know. Gr- as, have you emphasis on group guilt? It's When I first learned about it, for example, it was when I was in law school. And that's appropriate because CRT originally comes from law schools. And it was where I heard one of my best friends, you know, um, when he started dating a woman from Smith, you know, explain that um, uh, racism isn't uh, defined as just being, you know, hating someone because of their race or overgeneralizing. It's now you have to have power. And if you don't have power, it's not racism anymore. And I remember hearing that. I'm like, that's a, that's not a, that's a, that's a really bad idea for a generally pluralistic society. So, I mean, everybody who's been on campus, particularly, um, at, I went to Stanford for law school, so, uh, some of these campuses, you, you hear about this stuff quite a bit. And Rufo has kind of connected this all in a big sort of basket, <laughs> uh, that word's maintained, a big basket of, um, of, of ideas uh, that he, uh, has set up on the, the sort of like crusade to eliminate from higher education and K through 12. And uh, across the country, um, legislatures have passed these rules that are trying to quote unquote ban CRT in um, higher education. These are these are some of the worst laws I've seen in my career because it's laughably unconstitutional to try to tell um uh, schools uh that they can't teach ideas uh, you know forbidden ideas about race and gender and all this kind of stuff. It it's not it's not even laughably it's like particularly bad.
0: K through 12 teachers and students and that that appears to be the current focus. They do not they do not have full First Amendment rights the way uh, call uh, higher education folks at public settings do. How does that question of like exactly what rights people have in K twelve settings interact with this debate? Because in some cases, you guys are opposed to stuff that that can legally be passed. It's not unconstitutional, right?
4: Right. Well, it's it, it's that's what I was trying to do in the five thousand word piece because people were there. There was starting to be sort of like a wave against all of these laws that where some of the nuance seemed to be falling out. And one of the ones that I, I felt like was starting to happen was people were starting to assume that the K through twelve laws that say you can't teach the following things, and people, should, and I want to be really clear: read the actual laws because in some cases you'll find stuff that's not nearly as horrifying as you think, like singling people out, on, just telling telling kids that you know one race is superior to the other, like reappears all throughout the stuff. Stuff that actually is arguably punishable under Title VI, uh, but I don't want to get too far into into that. But when it comes to law from higher education and K through 12, they're just night and day. They're, They're just, they're very different when it comes to things like curriculum. Um, so the state uh, state legislatures have a role in deciding curriculum in virtually every state in the country. And th- this was kind of falling out to a degree because I didn't want people thinking that, that they could go out there and challenge these things in court and likely win if they were just doing from K through 12. Now, when it comes to the free speech rights of students, so, uh, the, 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 the people, the free speech rights you should be concerned about in K through 12. Are the free speech rights of the students themselves? That's the most important free speech right. That's the one where we think that there's been a big erosion of free speech rights of of K through 12 students. We were very actually pleased that Mahanoy, the 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 Supreme Court case about the you know fuck cheer uh, case.
1: I mean, really, fuck cheer.
4: Well, fuck cheer. (laughs) She's totally right. We should give a little background on that. Well, it was a student who uh, put on Snapchat. um, You know, I forget what exactly the scenario was. She got turned down for varsity.
0: I think she didn't make varsity. She said, "Fuck cheer." Uh, this was off campus on Snapchat, and then she was banned from her cheer team for a year. It was a
4: quadrifuckia. um she, had, <laughs> she said, "Like fuck cheer, fuck something else, fuck everything." I mean, it's like nice and thorough, but it was on Snapchat. uh So you know, the idea there is that it goes to her 250 friends, and they erase it. But of course, someone took a screenshot, and the next thing you know, she's being punished um, for saying this. Now. The reason why it's a little bit of a of a mediocre free speech opinion in a lot of people's opinions, but as far as I was concerned, oh, and so the Supreme Court found on behalf of of the student. They they, they said that she should not have been um, you know kicked out. She should not have been punished. This was free speech. It was off campus. It was extracurricular. It was she was using a system where she was trying to keep it among her friends. Um, and people some uh, some some people looked at it and saying this isn't that helpful of an opinion. But the reason why I find it heartening is because the Supreme Court had like a billion outs. There was a million different ways it could have figured out how to not find for this student, and they didn't. They didn't take any of them. They could have just said, "Oh, but this is just an internal cheer thing, for example, so they can punish their own, and the rules are different when you're when you're in a team." So um, the Supreme Court found for the free speech rights of of, of the of the angry cheerleader, um, and we think of that as actually good progress. But overall, the free speech rights of K 312 twelve students has been eroded to a degree since Tinker v. Des Moines, which is the famous, you know, arm ban case. Um, but when people talk about the free speech rights of, of, of K-12 teachers... Um, and I also agree, by the way, that K through 12 teachers have too little ac- extramural free speech rights. That that getting in, getting in trouble for what they say off the job or what they you know writing a, writing a, an op ed, that kind of stuff. I think that their free speech rights have become too weak as well. But if you actually start to, th- but when people start to say it's like yes, but this is a speech code for the whole country, and uh, when you're applying it to K through 12, it's not exactly right because K through 12 curriculum is considered to be the government speaking. And I just I, for whatever dumb reason like. Like I felt like as we're getting more into K through twelve, I had to be really clear that these are not the same things, and um, I have uh, suffered appropriately for it.
1: <laughs> yes, I saw some of the uh, some of the responses to your piece, which is one of the reasons <laughs> I wanted to talk to, talk to you, was because you seem to make everybody mad, which I think is uh, is yeah. generally a sign that you're doing something right.
4: Actually, the funny thing is, we mostly come down. I'd say we eighty five percent come down on the critical of these laws because we even point out that even if they're constitutional, they're vague and confusing, and they could lead to all sorts of problems in actual but nonetheless they are constitutional and the one thing that I tried to and I, I always try to do this is make the point that um, that this is not a hallucination when, when people actually said things like Oh, this is just a moral panic. I'm like, no, it's actually not just a moral panic. I've been talking to parents all across the country about this, and, if, and then of course people move over to it's like, oh, you're defending Chris Rufo. I'm like, no, I'm talking to the uh, it's the parents that I've heard um, about this kind of aggressive um, identity politics that they're running into, and and they don't they don't like it. Um, so I mentioned those are the two things that got me in trouble. Um, what were one, I, I I pointed out that this is probably constitutional, and two that the parents aren't completely hallucinating this, and I had two biggish people on the Twitters, Jeet uh, here and was it what's the other guy oh, this guy's name? Michael was it Michael Hobbs? My, Michael Hobbs who I've never heard of. And they took a tweet where I said, and I'm, you know, off the coddling the American mind here, um, that I something, why is or not um, the uh, they try to justify uh, the, one of the laws was on a ban on causing someone anguish on the basis of race or sex. Um, which is one of the strongest languages. It's the closest to mirroring the actual um, standard for unprotected harassment, which is severe pervasive, probably not quite there, but nonetheless. And I I guess stupidly mentioned at the end of the uh, at the tweets, like, you know, like the, the being concerned about mental health is, it, and since I had to do it in a tweet, I didn't say it as with as many words, but being concerned about the mental health of students is understandable, given that there's been this absolute crater of mental health uh, um, outcomes for, you know, 10, 10 to 22 Year olds, like uh, young people are in serious trouble. And this is me doing what I try to always do when I'm writing, not strictly as an advocate, when I'm writing more kind of, you know, my coddling type stuff, is try to really see where people are coming from. This got interpreted by Michael Hobbs and Jeet here as president of of a free speech organization, thinks white kids should be protected from offense. And I'm like, Wow. Really? Um, and, and the funny thing is you have to go actually into the tweets. And it was also a reminder that we should, I should not write 32 tweet long tweet storms because it just gives people too much material to take out of context. And I, and I usually don't engage with trolls. I actually didn't think Jeet was a troll, but I was a little disappointed there. And Hobbs, you know, it's one of these things he called me like unbelievably disingenuous. And I'm like, I've been accused of a lot of things, but disingenuous? Yes. I decided to write this, this thoughtful 5,000 word Piece that I knew would make neither side happy. Out of what? Like personal gain? You know, the, the idea here was essentially to really try to parse through these, parse through them seriously, take both sides seriously. I still came on overwhelmingly against the laws, but apparently. I was a heretic, nonetheless.
1: Yeah, one of the difficulties of this conversation, and one of the the annoying things about it, and one of the reasons I wish the whole thing would just fucking disappear, is that there's <laughs> so much bad faith on both sides, and and and, oh my God. And, the, and the sides are not actually talking about the same thing.
4: No, and that's one of my points in it, it, it is that they're talking they're talking right past each other. Yeah. Because on the one side they're saying you don't want to teach about slavery, and you know the parents are saying I don't want my kid to be to to have a really strong sense that he's part of a of a white identity group.
0: There's not good quality control in DEI and, and diversity, equity, inclusion. There's a lot of like really wacky trainings that, in some cases, and you provide some evidence of this in your post, have taken hold in schools, and that's bad. It's not a world historical problem, but I think in part because of like. I like I like Jeet here, but he does do that Carter, because you get that kind of response from like the Jeet heres and the and the Michael Hobbs of the world. Where if you have any critiques, you're basically Hitler. Because who else would want want to criticize that stuff? It just makes for a very <laughs> super super, Hitler. super super duper Hitler. It just makes for a very <laughs> unhealthy like intellectual ecosystem. I think.
1: Well, and there's also the the fact that uh, you mentioned this in your piece, Greg. Chris Rufo has he said this on Twitter that he was going to redefine the term critical race theory so that when anybody hears about these sort of illiberal diversity trainings, anti-racist trainings, whatever, in schools or in offices, the first thing that comes into mind is critical race theory. I don't know why he chose this particular term, because the term already exists and it does have a meaning, a specific meaning, And so when his critics say, you're not talking about critical race theory, they're sort of right. In some cases, they are sort of right because he has redefined the term. So I don't know why he didn't, if he wanted to go on this mission, which honestly, part of me thinks that this is sort of about his own political ambitions. He has been incredibly successful at becoming becoming famous in this country, just in the last like six months through this campaign. And
4: and meanwhile, kind of like, And and that's why I have to I can't stop stressing this. He's helped foment one of the worst legislative attacks I've seen on academic freedom um, in my, you know, in in my main job of 20 years going after higher education, saying what they can and cannot say.
1: Okay, so let's talk about let's talk about this a little bit. Mm-hmm. Let's work through some of the bills here. Um, will sure. you will you pick out some of the most sort of egregiously bad bills and the ones that you think are slightly better?
4: There are dozens of bills with possibly hundreds of amendments. Um, so you're talking about just uh, um, and at this point now there's probably you know hundred bills with uh, probably getting closer to a thousand. Um, when it comes to the ones that are you know poorly thought out, the ones that just have like uh, the uh, th- that go after punishing sort of just divisive ideas. Way too vague, way too broad, almost all of the ones has applied to higher education, even the ones that don 't sound that bad in some cases um, are uh have chunks at least that are that are clearly too vague and broad and that's the and vagueness and, and broadness are the two are the two primary ways you sort of analyze uh, laws for facial unconstitutionality under the first Amendment, and that just means that you look at the wording of this, you know, like, let's say, like, Congress tried to pass something a saying that you should not, you sh- thou shall not disrespect Congress. Um, that would be laughably unconstitutional because while in theory it might include some speech that's not protected, it would, it would be too vague and too broad and, and immediately shot down. So, so when it, um, so d- some of the really basic stuff, even like, b- uh, banning stuff that causes people anguish, for example, that would be probably considered too vague and too broad as applied to K through 12. The analysis, oh, and in terms of ones that are uh, probably, like, I wouldn't necessarily want to go into court to challenge them. Uh, North Carolina had one that really focused on compelled speech. Um, and I think other parts of it were really unconstitutional. Uh, but there was one part where it was the entire subsection was about you should not compel students to say the following things or take the following positions. And it's like, if that's your case, then you're on very firm constitutional ground, which is also one of the reasons why I'd like people to actually go read some of these bills. Because, yes, um, a lot of them have unconstitutional um. Uh, parts in them, uh, but at the same time, they probably not. They probably don't look like a lot of people who are who think they have their mind made up that these are. Uh, they, they probably look more nuanced than you might think.
0: Is, is isn't the logical chain of the the ones that um the you that you think there's the most justifiable concern about the logical chain is basically you have to go to school so yep. that if in a school setting you're compelled to, for example. State you're privileged, or, or list your privileges, or put yourself in in reference to another group on some hierarchy of oppression. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of stuff where you're basically compelling people to make a political point they might not have come to themselves, right?
4: Yeah, and and that comes out of what, you know uh, what I would call fire's kind of lodestar opinion, like the one that, we, and it's also opinion that just everybody should listen to. We even did a recording of Nadine Strawson, the former. Um, head of the ACLU and a, and, a, and a good friend. She did a recording of the reading of the 1943 op- opinion Barnett, the West Virginia Board of Education, uh, because it's also, it's like a poem. Like, it's a beautiful poem about what it means to live in a free society. And it's all about whether or not you can make students uh, pledge allegiance to the flag and salute the flag in this weird, creepy sort of Hitlerian kind of uh, uh, salute uh, that, that people used to do, believe it or not, back in the 1930s. You used to uh thrust your arm with your hand open kind of like an evita uh towards the uh towards the flag and Initially, the Supreme Court got it wrong in a case called Globitus and said, no, no, schools can do this. And then in 1943, they come out with this gorgeous opinion saying, no, 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 that is not us. We do not do that. We do not uh, let public schools say tell people what shall be orthodox in nationalism, religion, etc." cetera. Um, and that essentially compelled speech became this thing that rightfully um, ha- has a very special place in sort of First Amendment, it, that, that it's much, it's not – it's considered even worse to tell people what they must say than what they what they can't say.
1: Okay, so we know that some of these bills are constitutional. Some of them probably aren't and will face challenges, but that doesn't necessarily make them good or right. So, right. can you talk about some of your criticisms beyond the constitutionality?
4: Oh, sure. Yeah, there. there you know, there are ones that talk about. You know, making, that, and again, the analysis completely changes when you're talking about, um, K through 12. So, w- when they have things about not causing students uh, feelings of guilt, um, the, that's laughably unconstitutional in higher ed, um, you might, uh, you might be able to to uh, get get away with it in K through twelve where you're writing curriculum, but it's still terribly vague. It still leads to the argument that maybe you couldn't teach about slavery, maybe you couldn't teach about Jim Crow, maybe you couldn't teach maybe you couldn't teach about privilege, you know, for example. So there's a lot of bad guidance that leads to uh, critics appropriately saying like, how on earth are we actually supposed to teach American history um, with with all of the horrible things, uh, you know, so the great things that America did and the horrible things that America did? How can we teach it with these kind of constraints. Now, the reason why that argument is, a, is once again a little different in K-12, through though, is that the weird thing about these Rufoian laws is that they kind of create a negative curriculum, and we don't know what the positive curriculum that's going to come out of it looks like. They're saying, don't teach this but, but um, uh, with an idea, but you should also teach this. Some of them even try to say, it's like, but you have to teach slavery, and you have to teach this, and, and, and it um, and shouldn't interfere with redlining. Um, what's actually going to come out of this mess? I don't know, but it's really important for people to, you know, go to their Bonnie Schneider. She she's our K through 12 person at, at Fire and she's coming out with a book called Undoctrinate. It's coming out in September and she's writing a piece that I think is coming out in Persuasion talking about how Everybody, I don't care where you are in this. Go to your school board meetings, your your local school board meetings. If you don't believe any of this stuff is going on, go and you know possibly be reassured. If you believe this is a problem, go and ask questions because the curriculum hasn't actually been written. We just have these weird monolithic, confusing laws um, that are supposed to set the, the 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 parameters to a degree. It's so annoying. It's a big culture war mess.
0: I, I've noticed this weird thing among people who like, you know, are so worried about oppression and and government tyranny. But it's sometimes like it's like their first response to anything they don't like yeah. is to make a law banning it. And and that's um, it's just the, you know, potential for unintended consequences potential. for a lawsuit. <laughs>
4: it's, it's definitely going to happen.
0: There are and there are going to be lawsuits. Well, and not only that, but if you don't write these laws so carefully, you can get teachers in I mean, you've pointed this out, but you can get teachers in trouble yeah. teaching stuff we want taught. It's just when I, you know, when I say I'm exhausted by it, I don't mean it's an entirely manufactured controversy. And I think I, maybe more so than Katie, um I've been I've pushed in the direction of of thinking you and Height uh are are on the right track and worrying about this stuff. I thought in twenty fifteen it was like basically You know, these are just crazy college students. Who cares? I I think it's bad. I just also think both the, like you said, both sides of it are so bad faith. And it is sometimes painted in this sort of, like, apocalyptic good versus evil light that I think – uh, screams over actual conversation debate Yeah,
1: I mean this equity stuff is real. This is happening. A Washington state where I live, they they've had a state equity plan in place since or at least have been talking about it for
4: at least What does it look like? Um
1: well, it's I'm looking at the PDF right now and it's 275 pages so I'll have to get back to you on that. But the date <laughs> is from 2015. So th- so this was one version of it. So they've been talking about this in Washington state, which of course is one of the more progressive states. I think this thing often happens where in and we've talked about this in in the context of, of trans stuff before. In a, you know there'll be some cultural issue, whether it's race or trans stuff or whatever, and there's a response on the right to things that are actually happening on the left. And I think that's what's happening right now, where you do have these equity agendas popping up all over the all, all over the country in different blue states. These are real. Some of them are probably good. Some of them are probably terrible. And they're responding to a real thing that's happening, but. I don't see the solution as to like Washington state is like, you know, or California has, has these equity agendas and, and students are being taught to, to, uh, you know, denounce their privilege or whatever in one state and in the neighboring states. You have the opposite. This just doesn't seem like a solution to me at all. Okay, so you do you do something that I love in this piece, which is you talk about potential alternatives, potential solutions. Can you go uh, Can you go into that a little bit?
4: Sure, absolutely. And that's something that David French has been arguing a lot for, um, which is uh, that when you talk about like the really kind of the, like the. The, uh, the, the, the kind of abuses, you know, like there was that case in Las Vegas, you know, where it's a biracial kid. Um, he has a lawsuit right now or his family has a lawsuit. And it's a heartbreaking story because this is a, um, he is biracial and his father is dead, uh, and his mother is, is, is black and he's being. Picked on, but in a sort of what looks like you have to, you know, if you if you if you take the complaint at face value, he's being essentially racially harassed, uh, you know, in his school, and he's being told horrible things about his own. F- departed father, you know, uh, about because th- that essentially your your white father must have assaulted your um, which I think was a nice way of saying raped. Uh, his, Wait, like uh, his
1: teachers uh, are saying this? or uh, uh,
4: there, there, The teacher, the allegation is essentially that the teacher uh, goaded uh, some of this behavior, didn't stop some of this behavior. I don't know the extent to which the allegation is that she engaged it in it herself um, but was, you know, th- on the worst claims, but like allowed you know, uh, something that would be called under the law, racial harassment um, and that's uh, David French's you know, idea is that you, you, you basically you have to wait for some particularly bad cases and you bring Title VI claims, um, which is that you can't have racial discrimination and um, hostile environment harassment includes that. Now, that has to be severe, persistent and pervasive. But that was why I was bringing up the whole anguish idea, because I think that was at least a, a somewhat, you know, not quite adequate, but nonetheless, you know, closer to the mark attempts to actually have something that looks like the real harassment standard. Now, interestingly, the severe persistent pervasive is the standard for student on student harassment. When it's someone who's actually like working, you know, a teacher, if they're actually being, you know, aggressively mean to a student on the basis of race, the standard is actually, she's held, that professor, that teacher is held to a higher standard. So, so you could potentially, you know, for example, bring a lawsuit there. I think, <laughs> given the climate, you probably wouldn't have a hard time finding someone to represent you. There's also, you know, the, I'm
1: going to interrupt oh, you. Sure. Real, I'm going to interrupt you real quick here because this is something that Chris Rufo he was just on uh, on the Fifth Column. I heard that last week, and um, yeah, he had a, a you know a great robust debate with uh, yep. with the guys there, and he pointed out, and I think this is this is a a valid concern. Should the onus really be on parents, especially poor, overworked, uh, you know, maybe have been homeschooling their ch- children for the past year, parents to take, to, to, to like do these, these cases?
4: I thought that was actually a less persuasive argument than it sounded, uh, for this reason. There are, is that there are, are um, you know I run a organization um, that where I have lawyers to defend the rights of high of of students in higher education. So I know that there are other organizations that are out there um, that would you know represent someone pro bono. And these and certainly if there weren't ones that were funded before, there are now given all the concern about this. So I don't think it necessarily comes down to an economic class thing. I think that there are you know organizations out there that if they could find a student in a similar situation would be happy to um, you know represent them either pro bono or on contingency where okay. the problem comes in is it, for conservatives is if you're if you think that you're basically just saying you don't want little children to feel you know mortified on the basis of their race and, to be, and the funny thing is like you, wa- you watch people who claim to care about you know care about kids and and if it's about uh, someone doing this to to, uh, to to black kids, they rightfully are horrified. If it's to do it to white kids, they immediately start doing like, "Oh, your whittle healings were hurt." And I'm like, "No, I actually would prefer no kids <laughs> be harassed on the basis of the race." Period. Um, and and the, the the fact that we are talking about children um changes the discussion and i sometimes wish we would actually sometimes break this discussion up even further and talk about maybe k through 6 and then you know junior high school and then high school because the the rights uh, the, the rights that you have basically get less and less um the the younger you get so high school students have decent free speech rights S- sixth graders you know um they really are very much uh, and third graders are really much in, in the care of, of their teachers
1: yeah which makes sense because their children.
4: Yeah, the, the, the fact this is actually about children is what is one of those things that, that, that watching some the ways... Who
1: cares about the kids?
4: <laughs> Why won't somebody stop thinking about the children?
1: So let's talk a little bit about the media's role in all this. And you wrote a little bit about this in your piece. What are you seeing from the media coverage?
0: Yeah,
4: um, I think it's, some of it's been good, um, some of it not so much. And definitely I spent a, a sort of frustrating day watching people talk about the um part of the Florida law. This
0: was insane. This is like some of the I, I criticize media all the time, but this just the complete conjuration of a fake story. So yeah, sorry. I just it's drove me crazy. What's maddening about it is um, one of these DeSantis laws, or sometimes they're actually
4: like school board decisions, it gets a little confusing, um, included something about uh, representative surveys um, about political leanings. Um, and this got t- turned around in Salon as a mandatory, um, what is it, registry of political beliefs, you know, from professors and students and it's like wow okay and so I, I was dealing with this and being kind of like but that's not really what the law says and meanwhile i think we should, i'm all about data like i like if you're saying that there's a viewpoint diversity problem in campus you should actually be doing polling um that's rigorous and fire tries to
0: do it just, just just so we're Clear for listeners who are unfamiliar, the law, and it's not long. You can read it. It basically says we should have a statistically significant, uh, statistically like robust representative survey. And and if you read it, and you're familiar with the climate survey, yeah. that's what it is. It's a it's a survey saying, are you free expressing your views, so on. Now, it does not explicitly say in the bill that we're going to ask you know, teachers and kids about their politics, but that's a safe assumption because to get useful data from a climate survey, you sort of need to do that, right?
4: Yeah, yeah, no, ex- exactly. And and so it's one of the, you know, main issues that people talk about is the the fact that it's politically monolithic, perfectly legitimate to, to look into that. But what's amazing about this particular bill is, of course, we're getting blasted about where's fire on this, which happens within 30 seconds. And it's usually sometimes, sometimes people will actually send me Articles in which I'm quoted towards the end, or Adam Steinbach is quoted towards the end, being like, "Where's fire on this?" I'm like, "Where how people know about the story." But we opposed the bill for on different bases, you know, that, that very same day. But the misrepresentation of that was just kind of maddening. In other cases, I do feel like there's there's a sense that this is just. I, I feel like depending on what you listen to, there's a sense that this is. I, there was something that I was listening to on NPR. That sounded a lot at least initially, like oh we're just trying to talk about uh, we're just trying to talk about slavery, and the conservatives don't want us to to ever discuss slavery. Um, uh in K through twelve, and that was that's where the whole talking past each other thing came. I'm like, well, no, they're they're really more talking about browbeating people on the basis of their race and giving them a very strong, you know, idea of of racial separation, more or less, uh, of of racial essentialism, as it's called. So I, I haven't I haven't been exactly thrilled with the coverage on that, but I do think it's improved at least a little bit. Ex- except for solo. Okay, here's
1: here's a headline: The rights attack on critical race theory, another battle in the Orwellian war against democracy. <laughs> is this Orwellian? And 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 I ask because I'm sort of struggling with this. It does feel like, you know, uh it, it feels like an attack on academic freedom, however It is. K12 th- teachers don't have academic freedom in the first place.
4: Well, and this is why I wish like if you're if you're concerned about identity politics um getting out of the ed schools and being too aggressive and leading to a situation in which people feel more divided than ever. Um then, you know, ask a lawyer, you know, ask an educator, like, how do I help address this? It wouldn't have been as sexy and spectacular as kind of like the Rufo slash Tucker Carlson explosion. Um, uh, but at the same time, it would have it, you would have gotten a very clear stay the stay the hell away from higher education. Higher education is a completely different institution than K through 12. We rely on higher education to help us understand the universe, you know, as it is. That's not the function of of K through 12. So by beginning it with this kind of round of going after higher ed, um I think it's permanent, probably permanently given the stigma to the to the entire movement to to address this. I'm not sure that you can. Uh, successfully address some of the things that I do think parents, you know, uh, are legitimately concerned about, which is, you know, very, and the, and the thing that I keep on pointing, like trying to point out, and there's a reason why I point this out, is the parents I'm hearing from, they are, some of them are conservatives, a lot of them are liberals, and if you think about some of the, the, the ideas of racial essentialism, they go against small L liberalism. And I think, honestly, J- Jesse and Katie, I think this is why we know each other. Like, I'm a small L liberal, I'm also a relatively big L liberal, but there does seem to be that the two different sides of the culture wars are are increasingly pushing away from sort of like some basic ideas of liberalism itself.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's the inconsistencies are just really obvious. Oh, you know, sure. I mean, especially like on the on the right when you talk about okay, conservatives, you know, uh, you want more hands off government, you want <laughs> more freedom, okay, and then now you want to dictate whether or not the sixteen nineteen project can be taught in schools, and of course, none of this is new, as you point in, point out in your piece. In your piece, schools have always been political.
4: Yeah. That, that was one thing I did have to admit I snickered at was, was someone saying, it's like, We can't introduce politics into K through 12 curriculum. And I'm like, what, what? Like the, it's, it's, it's literally a political process.
0: I I think a lot of people are just like parachuting into this conflict with no sense of like, so like, again, when you say people saying introducing politics into really that they weren't in there before, really the state has no role in shaping. This is one of the many reasons it's become a sort of insufferable, very low intelligence conversation.
1: Yeah. You know, I also, I wonder how different this would be, I can't remember who pointed this out, but somebody pointed this out on Twitter. There has been a lot of um, what might be maybe knee-jerk uh, repulsion of these bills because of who is bringing them to the table, yeah, which I completely get because do I want Ted Cruz deciding <laughs> what is in what is in any student's curriculum? The answer is no, and I have to sort of grapple with that myself, like is part of my knee-jerk reaction to these bills the fact that they're coming out of, uh, out of red state legislatures? Yeah.
4: Yeah, that's something that I I tell my staff, um, is that it's hard to do this job. And we have people at FIRE who vote. We have, we're we're more liberal internally than than conservative. Um, and to do this job, you know, when you're interviewing people, it's like, you know, people are going to hate you. Like, 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 if you do the, if you do this job correctly, people are going to, somebody's going to hate you, like, with, you know, every couple of weeks, someone new. Um, but that's, you know, p- you know, part of being principled. But the interesting thing is so, in some ways, like having your friends be maybe angry at you, you know, something you can learn to live with or having that family member who you'll get in arguments with at Thanksgiving is one thing. The the harder thing to get used to is having people you really, really
0: hate agreeing with you. <laughs> I've encountered this because I, I despise Kate. <laughs> I agree on a lot of political stuff.
1: Oh. Yeah, the only answer in that situation is to start a podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's really uh, good to talk to you.
0: Th-
4: thanks for having me. Uh, stay in touch um, and uh, forward me all hate mail. <laughs> Thank you so much, Great. All
0: right, Jesse, we're back, just the two of us. Very, uh, very good guy, very smart guy. I was glad we got to speak with him.
1: Yeah, definitely. A couple of things that I wanted to point out. We didn't really discuss this in the interview, but a lot of people, if you like, have been following this conversation online. A lot of people are saying things like, "You know, critical race theory isn't being taught in school in K twelve schools." That is sort of technically true. It's not being typically taught in these schools. It's being implemented in these schools.
0: Yeah, it, it's uh, and again, as he was saying, it's so complicated because there's this fuzzy line between like classical critical race theory and then these DEI interventions and then it varies so much from classroom to classroom. It's just a mess right now.
1: Yeah, it is. But talking to Greg did sort of change my mind a little bit because – I did – my first impulse when it comes to, you know, the government getting involved, the state's legislators getting involved in these cultural issues is that I just want them to stop um, because – I like, especially when it comes to education because our schools are so fucked up, especially after a year of pandemic, it seems like they should be focusing on things like – I don't know – teaching children to read, teaching children math, just these basic things that are like actually not happening in a lot of schools. Um so so this this focus on these cultural culture war issues is I think uh it's misplaced and oftentimes it's the whole point is really to make uh it's like it's campaigning basically.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think there's some of that. I mean, schools do a lot of different things and they're going to teach someone's values, so I just I think it's very there's versions of these laws I'd be for if they were very narrowly done, but I just think from what I've seen, there's so much potential for just like I mean, we we said this all in the interview. We don't need to relitigate it, but um, yeah.
1: I did I did change my mind a little bit because instead of I think Greg is right. Like it just it is more nuanced than sort of you're in favor of these laws or you're not in favor of these laws. And if you had you know a narrow law, a law that said something like students cannot be compelled to renounce their privilege would i be in favor of that kind of
0: well but a lot of those laws are it's already you can't right right force kids to adopt certain political creeds right. so i think it, some of it strikes me as um redundant but yes if someone if someone was like you can't force a white person to say why they feel guilty about being white i'd be like sure whatever i don't want that in public school
1: yeah that's sort of the point it's just like children shouldn't be compelled to take these ideological positions it's hard to sort of argue with that. Of course, a lot of these these laws are super fucking broad and will have major downstream effects that um, that the, the creators of them either don't care about or are seemingly unaware of.
0: Yeah, we'll probably be dead by then. Oh god, I hope so.
1: Make it come fast. <laughs> I can't
0: wait. Just can't fucking wait. Dude. I also
1: realized through talking of Greg, talking with Greg, how much even though I'm I'm so skeptical of media, how much misinformation I'd absorbed. About this, about this, uh, this entire debate.
0: Oh, I, I hate that now. If I'm look, I've, it's always been the case that uh, if I read Breitbart or certain far left outlets, I know I need to be a little bit skeptical. I'm at a point where, like on certain issues, I know that if I read a Washington Post piece, there's going to be at least one false claim, and yeah. that is so depressing. Just the state of things right now.
1: It is, it is. But I guess it's good that we're aware of it or is it bad to be is it better just to like live in, live in this sort of blissful ignorance I'm not actually
0: sure about that Th- this goes back to that whole like it'd be better to be dead thing because then we wouldn't have to think about any of this <laughs>
1: alright that's the solution right there you heard it first here Blocked and Reported
0: <laughs> the Pro-Death Podcast uh, anything, anything else Katie? Uh, I think that's it for this week this has been Blocked and Reported I'm Jesse Single and remember there is a slippery slope from gender critical puppetry to white supremacist puppetry
1: And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, the blocked and reported dating service cannot be held legally liable for anything that goes wrong on your dates.